Hello, Wild Wanders, and welcome to our wicked window of the internet. Won't you pour yourself a cup of your best tea, light a candle to stave away the darkness, and cozy up as we tell you a story? Wittershins is a storytelling podcast where we will dive into dusty bookshelves and winding, darkened pathways, looking to stories from gothic literature, folklore, fairy tales, horror, and beyond. We are accompanied by our trusted bard and guitarist Joe Saborin, who will be live accompanying for us as our characters find their way out of the thickets and snarls of their tales. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator to peer over bough and branch, following our heroes and foes into far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin Once Upon a Time. The Siren by F. Ancy. Long, long ago, a siren lived all alone upon a rocky little island far out in the southern ocean. She may have been the youngest and most beautiful of the original three sirens, driven out by her sister's jealousy or her own weariness of their society to seek this distant home. Or she may have lived there in solitude from the beginning. But she was not unhappy. All she cared about was the admiration and worship of mortal men. And these were hers whenever she wished, for she had only to sing. And her exquisite voice would float away on the waters until it reached some passing vessel. And then everyone that heard it was seized instantly. The irresistible longing to hasten to her isle and throw himself adoringly at her feet. One day, as she sat upon a low headland looking earnestly out over the sparkling blue-green water before her, and hoping to discover the peak of some far-off sail on the hazy sea line, she was startled by a sound she had never heard before, the grating of a boat's keel on the pebbles in the island creek at her side. She had been too much absorbed in watching for, for distant ships to notice that a small bark had been gliding round the other side of her island, but now, as she glanced round, she saw that the stranger who had guided it was already jumping ashore and securing his boat. Evidently, she had not attracted him there, for she had been too indolent to sing of late, and he did not seem even to have seen her or to have landed from any motive other than curiosity. He was quite young, gallant-looking and sunburnt, with brown hair curling over his forehead and open-faced and honest gray eyes. And as she looked at him, the fancy came to her that she would like to question him and hear his voice. She would find out, if she could, what manner of beings these mortals were over whom she possessed so strange a power. Never before had such a thought entered her mind, notwithstanding that she had seen many mortals of every age, rank, from captain to the lowest galley slave, but 
then she'd only seen them from under the influence of her magical voice. They were struck dumb and motionless, after which, except as proofs of her power, they did not interest her. But this stranger was still free, so long as she did not choose to enslave him, and for some reason she did not choose to do so just yet. As he turned towards her, she beckoned to him imperiously, and he saw that the slender, graceful figure above for the first time, the fairest maiden his eyes had ever beheld with an unearthly beauty in her wonderful dark blue eyes and hair of the sunniest gold. He stood gazing at her in motionless uncertainty, for he thought he must be cheated by a vision. He came near, and obeying a careless motion of her hand, threw himself down on a broad shelf of rock a little below the spot where she was seated. Still, he did not dare speak lest the vision should pass away. She looked at him for the first time with an innocent, almost childish curiosity shining under her long lashes. At last she gave a low, little laugh. <laughs> Are you afraid of me? she asked. Why don't you speak? But perhaps mortals cannot speak. I was silent, he said, lest by speaking I should anger you, for surely you must be some goddess or sea nymph. <laughs> you can speak, she said. No, I am no goddess or nymph, and you will not anger me. If only you will tell me many things I want to know. She began to ask him all the questions she could think of, first about the great world in which men lived, and then about himself, for she was very curious in a charmingly willful and capricious fashion of her own. He answered frankly and simply, but it seemed as if some influence were upon him which kept him from being dazzled and overcome by her loveliness, for he gave no sign as yet of yielding to the glamour she cast upon all other men, nor did his eyes gleam with a despairing adoration the siren knew too well. She was quick to perceive this, and it piqued her. She paid less and less attention to the answers he gave and ceased at last to question him further. Presently, she said with a strange smile that showed her cruel little teeth gleaming before her scarlet lips, Why don't you ask me who I am and what I am doing here alone? Do you not care to know? If you will deem to tell me, he said. Then I will tell you, she said. I am a siren. Are you not afraid now? Why should I be afraid, he asked, for the name had no meaning in his ears. She was disappointed. It was only her voice, nothing else then, that deprived men of their senses. Perhaps this youth was proof even against that. She longed to try, and yet hesitated still. Then you have never heard of me, she said. You don't know why I sit and watch for the great gilded ships you mortals build for yourselves? For your pleasure, I suppose, he answered. I have watched them myself many a time. They're grand as they sweep in with their sharp brazen beaks to the sky. It is good to hear the measured thud of great oars and the cheerful cries of the sailors as they clamber about the cordage. She laughed disdainfully. <laughs> you think I care for all that, she cried. Where is the pleasure of looking idly on and admiring? That is for them, not for me. As these galleys of yours pass, I sing. And when the sailors hear, they must come to me. Man after man leaps eagerly into the sea. 
and makes for the shore, until at last the oars grind and lock together and the great ship drifts helplessly on, empty and aimless. I like that. But the men? he asked with an uneasy wonder at her words. Oh, they reach the shore, some of them. And then they lie at my feet just as you are lying now, and I sing on. And as they listen, they lose all power or wish to move. Nor have I ever heard them speak as you speak. They only lie there upon the sand or rock and gaze at me always. Soon their cheeks grow hollower and hollower and their eyes brighter and brighter. It is I who make them so. But I see them not, said the youth, divided between hope and fear. The beach is bare. Where then are all those gone who have lain here? I cannot say, she replied carelessly. They're not here for long. When the sea comes up, it carries them away. And you do not care, he cried, struck with horror at the absolute indifference in her face. You do not even try to keep them here? (laughs) Why should I care, said the siren lightly. I do not want them. More will always come when I wish. It's so wearisome always to see the same faces that I am glad when they go. I will not believe it, Siren, groaned the young man, turning from her in bitter anguish. Oh, you cannot be cruel. No, no, I am not cruel, she said in surprise. And why will you not believe me? It is true. Listen to me, he said passionately. Do you know how bitter it is to die? To leave the sunlight and the warm air, the fair land and the changing sea? How can I know, said the siren. I shall never die. Unless something happens that will never be. You will live on to bring this bitterness upon others for your sport. We mortals lead but short lives, and life even spent in sorrow is sweet to most of us. And our deaths, when they come bringing mourning to those who cared for us and are left behind. But you lure men to this isle and look on unmoved as they are borne away. No, you are wrong, she said. I am not cruel as you think me. When they are no longer pleasant to look at, I leave them. I never see them borne away. I never thought what became of them at last. Where are they now? They are dead, Siren, he said sadly. Drowned. Life was dear to them, for away there were women and children to whom they had hoped to return, and who had waited and wept for them since happy years were before them, and to some at least, but for you, a restful and honored old age. But you called them. As they lay here, the greedy waves came up, dashed them from these rocks, and sucked them, blinding, suffocating, battling painfully for breath and life, down into the dark green depths. And now their bones lie tangled in the seaweed. But they themselves are wandering, sad, restless shades in the shadowy world below, where is no sun, no happiness, no hope, but only sighing evermore in the many of the past. She listened with drooping lids, and her chin rested upon her soft palm. At last she said with a slight quiver in her voice, I I, I did not know. I did not mean them to die. And what can I do? I cannot keep back the sea. He let them sail by unharmed, he said. I cannot, she cried. Of what use is my power to me if I may not exercise it? Why do you tell me of men's suffering? What are they to me? They give you their lives, he said. You fill them with a hopeless love. 
and they die for it in misery, yet you cannot even pity them. Is it love that brings them here, she said eagerly? What, what is this that is called love? For I've always known that if ever I love, but only then, I must die. Though what love may be, I know not. Tell me so that I may avoid it. You need not fear, Siren, he said. For if death is only to come to you through love, you will never die. Still, I want to know, she insisted. Tell me. If a stranger were to come some day to this isle, and when his eyes meet yours, you feel your indifference leaving you, so that you have no heart to see him lie nobly at your feet and cannot leave him to perish miserably in the cold waters, if you desire to keep him here by your side, not as your slave and victim, but as your companion, your equal forevermore, that will be love. If that is love, she cried joyously, I shall never die. But that is not how men love me, she added. No, he said. Their love for you must be some strange and enslaving passion, since they will submit to death if only they may hear your voice. That is not true love, but a fatal madness. But if mortals feel love for one another, they must die, must they not? The love of a man for a maiden who is gentle and good does not kill, even for when it is most hopeless, he said. And where she feels it in return, it is well for both, for their lives will flow on together in peace and happiness. He had spoken softly with a faraway look in his eye that did not escape the siren. And you love one of your mortal maidens like that, she asked. Is she more beautiful than I am? She is mortal, but she is fair and gracious, my maiden. And it is she who has my love and will have it while I live. And yet, she said with a mocking smile, I could make you forget her. Her childlike waywardness had left her. She spoke the words and a dangerous fire was shining in her deep eyes. Never, he cried, even you cannot make me false to my love. And yet, I, I dare not challenge you, enchantress that you are. What is my will against your power? You do not love me, she said. You have called me cruel and reproached me. You have dared to tell me of a maiden compared with whom I am nothing. You shall be punished. I will have you for my own, like the others. Siren, he pleaded, seizing one of her hands as it lay close to him on the hot gray rock. Take my life, if you will, but do not drive away the memory of my love. Let me die if I must die faithful to her for what I am. And what is my love to you? Nothing, she said scornfully. And yet, with something of a caress in her tone, yet, I want you. You shall lie here and hold my hand and look into my eyes and forget all else but me. Let me go, he cried, rising and turning back to rein his bark. I, I choose life while I may. She laughed. <laughs> you have no choice, she said. You are mine. She seemed to have grown more radiantly, dazzlingly fair and presently. As a stranger made his way to the creek where his boat was lying, she broke into the low, soft chant whose subtle witchery no mortals had ever resisted as yet. He started to hear her, but he went on over the rocks a little longer, until at last he stopped with a groan and turned back slowly. 
His love across the sea was fading fast from his memory. He felt no desire to escape any longer. He was even eager at last to be back on the ledge at her feet and listen to her forever. He reached it and sank down with a sigh, and a drowsy, delicious languor stole over him, taking away all power to stir or speak. Her song was triumphant and mocking, yet strangely tender at times, thrilling him as he heard it. But her eyes only rested now and then, and always indifferently upon his upturned face. He wished for nothing better now than to lie there following the flashing of her supple hands upon the harp strings and watching every change of her fair face. What though the waves may rise round him and sweep him away out of sight and drown her voice with a roar and swirl of waters, it would not be just yet. And the siren sang on, at first with a cruel pride at finding her power supreme in this youth for all his fidelity no wiser than the rest. He would waste there with yearning hopeless passion, till the sight of him would weary her and she would leave him to drift away and drown, forgotten. Yet she did not despise him as she despised all others. In her fancy, his eyes bore a sad reproach, and she could look at him no longer with indifference. Meanwhile, the waves came rolling in fast till they licked the foot of the rock, and as the phone creamed over the shingle, the siren found herself thinking of the fate which was before him, and as she thought, her heart was wrung with a new, strange pity. She did not want him to be drowned. She would like him there, always at her feet, with that rapt devotion upon his face. She almost longed to hear his voice again, but that could never be. The sun went down, and the crimson flush of the sky on the sea faded out. The sea grew gray and crested over the white billows, which came racing in and broke upon the shore, roaring sullenly and raking back the pebbles with a sharp, rattlety tree coil. The siren could sing no longer. Her voice died away, and she gazed on the troubled sea with a wistful sadness in her great eyes. At last, a wave larger than the others struck the face of the low cliff with a shock that seemed to leave it trembling and sent the cold salt spray dashing up into the siren's face. She sprang forward to the edge and looked over with a sudden terror lest the ledge below should bear, but her victim lay there still, bound fast by her spell and careless of the death that was advancing upon him. Then she knew for the first time that she could not give him up to the sea, and she leaned down to him and laid one small, white, trembling hand upon his shoulder. The next wave will carry you away, she cried, trembling. There is still time. Save yourself, for I cannot let you die. But he gave no sign of having heard, but lay motionless, and the wind wailed past them, and the sea grew wilder and louder. She remembered now that no efforts of his own could save him. He was doomed she was the cause of it, and she hid her face in her slender hands, weeping for the first time in her life. The words he had spoken in answer to her question about love came back to her. It was true then, she said to herself. It is love that I feel for him. But I, I cannot love, I must not love him, for if I do, my power is gone and I must throw myself into the sea. So 
she hardened her heart once more, turned away for she feared to die, but again the ground shook beneath her and the spray rose high into the air, and then she could bear it no more, whatever it cost her, she must save him, for if he died, what good would her life be to her? If one of us must die, she said, I will be that one. I am cruel and wicked, as he told me. I have done harm. And bending down, she wound her arms around his unconscious body and drew him gently up to the level above. You are safe now, she whispered. You shall not be drowned, for I love you. Sail back to your maiden on the mainland and be happy. But do not hate me for the evil I have wrought, for suffering and death have come to me in my turn. The lethargy into which he had fallen left him under her clinging embrace, and the sad, tender words fell almost unconsciously upon his dulled ears. He felt the touch of her hair as she brushed his cheek, and his forehead was still warm with the kiss she had pressed there when he opened his eyes, only to find himself alone. For the fate which the siren had dreaded had come upon her at last. She had loved, and she had paid the penalty for loving. And nevermore would her wild, sweet voice beguile mortals to their doom. Salka by Maurice Baring. Peter, or Petrushka, which was the name he was known by, was the carpenter's mate. His hair was like light straw and his eyes were mild and blue. He was good at his trade, a quiet and somber youth, thoughtful too, for he knew how to read and had read several books when he was still a boy. A translation of Monte Cristo once fell into his hands, and this story had kindled his imagination and stirred in him the desire to travel, to see new countries and strange people. He had made up his mind to leave the village and had to try his luck in one of the big towns, when before he was eighteen, something happened to him, which had entirely changed the color of his thoughts and the range of his desires. It was an ordinary experience enough. He fell in love. He fell in love with Tatiana, who worked in the starch factory. Tatiana's eyes were gray, her complexion was white, her features small and delicate, and her hair a beautiful dark brown with gold lights and black shadows in it. Her movements were quick and her glance keen. She was like a swallow. It happened when the snows melted and the meadows were flooded, the first fine day in April. The larks were singing over the plains, which were beginning to show themselves once more under the melting snow. The sun shone on the large patches of water and turned the flooded meadows in the valley into a fantastic vision. 
It was on a Sunday after church that this new thing happened. He'd often seen Tatiana before, the day she was different and new to him. It was as if a bandage had been taken from his eyes, and at that same moment, he realized that Tatiana was a new Tatiana. He also knew that the old world in which he had lived hitherto had crumbled into pieces, and that a new world, far brighter and more wonderful, had been created for him. As for Tatiana, she loved him at once. There was no delay, no hesitation, no misunderstandings, no doubt. And at first, not much speech. But first love came to them straight and swift, with the first sunshine of the spring, as it does to the birds. All the spring and summer they kept company and walked out together in the evenings. When the snows entirely melted and the true spring came, it came with a rush. In a fortnight's time, all the trees except the ash were green, and the bees boomed round the thick clusters of pear blossoms and apple blossoms which shone like snow against the bright azure. During that time, Petrushka and Tatiana walked in the apple orchard in the evening, and they talked to each other in the divinest of all languages, the language of first love, which is no language at all, but a confused medley and murmur of broken phrases, whisperings, twitterings, pauses, and silences. A language so wonderful that it cannot be put down into speech or words, although Shakespeare, and the very great poet, translates the spirit of it into music, and the great musicians catch the echo of it in their song. Then, a fortnight later, when the woods were carpeted and thick with lilies of the valley, Petrushka and Tatiana walked in the woods and picked the last white violets. And later again, they sought the alleys of the landlord's property where the lilac bushes were a mass of blossom and fragrance. And there they listened to the nightingale, the bird of spring. Then came the summer. The fragrance of the bean fields, the ripening of the corn, the wonderful long twilights in July. And the corn ripe and tall and stiff, changing the plains into a vast rippling ocean of gold. After the harvest, at the very beginning of autumn, they were to be married. There had been a slight difficulty about money. Tatiana's father insisted that Petrushka should produce a certain not very large sum, but the difficulty had been overcome and the money had been found. There were no more obstacles. Everything was smooth and settled. Petrushka no longer thought of travels to foreign lands. He had forgotten the old dreams which Monte Cristo had once kindled in him. It was the middle of August that the carpenter received instructions from the landowner to make some wooden steps and a small raft to fix them up on the banks of the river for the convenience of bathers. It did not take the carpenter and Petrushka long to make these things, and one afternoon Petrushka drove down to the river to fix them in their place. The river was broad. Banks were wooden with willow trees, and the undergrowth was thick, for the woods reached to the bank which was flat, but which ended sheer above the water over a slope of mud and roots that a bather needed steps or a raft or a springboard so as to dive and enter the, leave the water with comfort. Petrushka put the steps in their place, which was where the wood ended, and made fast the floating raft to them. Not far from the bank, the ground was marshy, and the spot was suspected by some people of being haunted by malaria. It was a still, sultry day. The river was like oil, the sky clouded, but not entirely overclouded. And among the high banks of gray clouds, there were patches of blue. 
When Petrushka had finished the job, he sat on a wooden steps and rolled some tobacco into a primitive cigarette, complicated the gray, oily water in the willow trees. It was too late in the year, he thought, to make a bathing place. Dipped his hands in the water. It was cold, but not too cold, yet in a fortnight's time it would not be pleasant to bathe. However, people had their whims, and he mused on the scheme of the universe which ordained that certain people should have whims and that others should humor these whims, and whether he liked it or not. Many people, many of his fellow workers, talked of the day when the universal leveling would take place, when all men could be equal. Trushka did not much believe in the advent of that day. He was not quite sure whether he ardently desired it. In any case, he was very happy as he was. At that moment, he heard two sharp, short sounds, less musical than a pipe, and not so loud or harsh as a scream. He looked up. A kingfisher had flown across the oily water. Trushka shouted, and the kingfisher skimmed over the water once more and disappeared in the trees on the other side of the river. Petrushka rolled and lit another cigarette. Presently, he heard the two sharp sounds once more, and the kingfisher darted right across the water. A bit of fish was in its beak. Disappeared onto the bank of the river on the same side which Petrushka was sitting, only lower down. Its nest must be there, thought Petrushka, and he remembered that he heard it said that no one had ever been able to carry off a kingfisher's nest intact. Why should he not be the first person to do so? He was skillful with his fingers, his touch was sure and light. It was evidently a carpenter's job, and few carpenters had the leisure or opportunity to look for kingfisher's nests. What a rare present it would be for Tatiana. A whole kingfisher's nest with every bone in it intact. He walked stealthily through the bushes down to the bank of the river, making as little noise as possible. He thought he had marked the spot where the kingfisher had dived into the bank, and as he walked, the undergrowth grew thicker and the path darker, for he had reached the wood on the outskirts, and the end of which was a spot where he had made the steps. He walked on and on without thinking, oblivious to his surroundings, until he suddenly realized that he had gone too far. Moreover, he must have been walking on for some time, for it was dark, and was that a thunder shower? The air, too, was unbearably sultry. He stopped and wiped his forehead with a big print handkerchief. It was impossible to reach the bank from the place where he now stood, as he was separated from, a, from it by a big ditch of stagnant water. He therefore retraced his footsteps through the wood. It grew darker and darker. It must be, he thought, the evening deepening in no storm. All at once he heard a sound, a high pipe. Was it the kingfisher? He paused and listened. Distinctly, and not far off in the undergrowth, he heard a laugh. A woman's laugh. It flashed across his mind that it might be Tatiana, but it was not her laugh. Something rustled in the bushes to the left of him. He followed the rustling, and it led him through the bushes. He had now passed the ditch to the riverbank. The sun had set behind the woods from which he had emerged. The sky was as gray as the water, and there was no reflection of the sunset in the east. Except the water and the trees, he saw nothing. There was not a sound to be heard, not a ripple on the river, not a whisper from the woods. Then all at once, the stillness was broken again by a quick, rippling laugh immediately behind him. He turned sharply around and saw a woman in the bushes. Her eyes were large and green and sad, her hair straggling and disheveled. 
She was dressed in reeds and leaves. She was very pale. She stared at him fixedly and smiled, showing gleaming teeth. And when she smiled, there was no light nor laughter in her eyes, which reminded him of the sad and green glaze, like those of a drowned person. She laughed again and ran to the bushes. Patricia ran after her, but although he was quite close to her, he lost all trace of her immediately. It was as if she vanished under the earth or into the air. It's a Rusalka, thought Petrushka, and he shivered. And he added to himself with the pride of a new skepticism he had learned from the factory hands. <laughs> There's no such thing. Only women believe in such things. It was some drunken woman. Petrushka walked home, back to the edge of the wood where he had left his cart and drove home. The next day was Sunday, and Tatiana noticed that he was different, moody, melancholy, absent-minded. She asked him what was the matter. He said his head ached. Toward five o'clock, he told her, they were standing outside the cottage, that he was obliged to go back to the river to work. Today is a holiday, she said quietly. I left something there yesterday. One of my tools. I must fetch it, he explained. Tatiana looked at him, and her intuition told her, firstly, that this was not true, and secondly, that it was not well for Petrushka to go to the river. She begged him not to go. Petrushka laughed and said he would be back quickly. Tatiana cried and implored him on her knees not to go. Then Petrushka grew irritable and almost rough, and told her not to vex him with foolishness. Reluctantly and sadly, she gave in at last. Petrushka went to the river, and Tatiana watched him go with a heavy heart. She felt quite certain disaster was about to happen. At seven o'clock, Petrushka had not yet returned, and he did not return that night. The next morning, the carpenter and two others went to the river to look for him. They found his body in the shallow water, entangled in the ropes of the raft he had made. He had been drowned, no doubt, in setting the raft straight. During all that Sunday night, Tatiana had said no word, nor had she moved from her doorstep. It was only when they brought back the dripping body to the village that she stirred. And when she saw it, she laughed a dreadful laugh. And the spirit went from her eyes, leaving a fixed stare. Wittershins is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and folk musician Joe Saborin. In the presence of their curious cat Django, a few too many half-drunk cups of tea, and far too many begrudgingly half-completed art projects. If you'd like to follow along Joe and his musical machinations, you can find him at Joe Saborin Music on Facebook and Instagram or joesaborin.com. For more glimpses into the wild woods of story, botanical libations, and sensual ephemera, you can find me, Ashley, at Old Growth Alchemy on Facebook and Instagram or at oldgrowthalchemy.com. 
And if you've enjoyed what you're listening to, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with a seat open for you by the fire.